So tonight I'd like to finish uh, what I started a couple of nights ago, talking about uh, trusting the intelligence of awareness, learning how to do that, how to trust uh, a different kind of intelligence, uh, one that's perhaps not so developed. Uh, clearly I spent a lot of time uh, thrashing the thinking mind. Uh, my main point was really to, to point out the limitations um, quite often that the thinking mind uh, how it operates in our, in, in, within ourselves, how often it, it, how conditioned it is, how limited it is. Uh, looking around the room, uh, one of the things I really uh, appreciate about doing that is that I, uh, it, there are so many apparent differences amongst us. You know, we're looking at different, everybody in this room really has a very distinct, very different body, different color, different shape, different size. And I, I very much appreciate that fact. Uh, and I think also living in a community like we've been doing in, cl in such close quarters, we, we become very acutely aware of the differences. Um, whether we're in the dining room or sitting in the hall, we all have our own unique styles of, of doing that. Styles of sitting, styles of eating, dressing, uh, moving about. And um, I'm sure many of you have already noticed those, those differences quite uh, quite up close. But instead of celebrating the differences, what do we usually do? What do we usually do with the differences? I think mostly the differences tend to get in our way. You know, they tend to create a lot of tension, a lot of discontent. And it may be the, di the differences that we, different approaches that we have in this particular community, but certainly we can look around, at, uh, look around at the world and we really see just uh, what kind of problems come out of sort of a, 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 the apparent differences that are out there. I mean, basically, we have different bodies and what kinds of, what kinds of problems come out of that fact that, that we have different bodies. Uh, we have different minds. That's really quite apparent, too. What kind of problems come out of that? And also, we come from really different cultural backgrounds. One of the reasons why it's so difficult to celebrate those differences is because of the value judgments we impose on them. Value judgments of good and bad, right and wrong. Uh, basically, it's the thinking mind is constantly making distinctions. It's one of its functions, it's making distinctions. Sometimes those, making those distinctions are necessary and they work for us. Other times they don't. In terms of value judgments in the body, I think this culture has uh, tremendous value judgments uh, focused on the body. Um, I'm reminded about, uh, about a, a year or two ago, I was in, in the dentist office, and I was sort of sitting there kind of in, in some anticipation. And of course, being a good yogi and all, um, I didn't watch my breath. Um, instead, I reached over and picked up a People magazine and started uh, perusing through, my, uh, through the People magazine. And I came across a, an interview, uh, an interview with a, a supermodel, somebody who uh, you know, has really achieved, you know, one of the three or four supermodels we have, uh, who's achieved this tremendous uh, success you know, um, as a model. And they were interviewing her. And it was a very serious kind of tone to the interview, which I thought was pretty funny. Uh, 
But then she very seriously, you know, some, somebody asked uh, the interviewer, you know, was talking about how much, you know, how admired she is and, you know, how, how wonderful it must be to be that attractive and, and all that. And then she, then the supermodel, something came out, came up to the surface. And, and one of the things that did come out was she started going through her body parts uh, and criticizing them. It was quite interesting. And, and I mean, the criticisms were very detailed and you c it was clear that she had a version in her mind. Uh, you know, she was describing her nose, I think. It, it, the tip of the nose, there was something, some flaw in the tip of her nose. Uh, her ears, I think, were a little small, perhaps. Something like that. And you could see that it was quite disturbing because this, is, of course, is how she makes a living. But you could also see that here is somebody who's a cultural ideal, a cultural type. And at the same time, uh, the value judgments uh, can be quite intense. You know, I mean, we can really examine and, and criticize our bodies bouncing up against that particular cultural ideal. And so no longer are the differences really celebrated, but they really, uh, they, they create an enormous amount of discontent. And we don't have to be supermodels to recognize that fact. Uh, look in a mirror sometime and see if you can become aware, bring some mindfulness to any value judgments, good or bad that come up. It's quite interesting. Uh, it's quite interesting just how we relate to that particular image of the body. The same with our minds. You know, we, imply, we, we impose tremendous value judgments on our minds and that's one of the things uh, that uh, as a teacher one really continually confronts uh, in, this, in this practice is just uh, how many value judgments we have about our minds, about particular states of mind, uh, particular things that are going on in our practice, and very, very regularly when those things are unpleasant, uh, when we don't like them, of course, there's, there's a tremendous value judgment. We think that there's something wrong. And that value judgment, it really isn't discrimination so much quite often, but it's a moral judgment. You know, it's a right or wrong, good or bad. Uh, anger is bad, of course. Fear is bad. Uh, joy and calm and serenity is good. And so, once again, we start making distinctions in the mind and, and we impose value judgments on them. We also tend to identify with differences. We also tend to identify with our bodies, for instance. And we very much take them for ourselves. And one of the very clearest places that happens is when we come down with an illness. Just uh, uh, how often fearful that is, but also quite often um, uh, just how many moral judgments there are about being ill. You know, we've done something wrong, there's something wrong with us. Uh, you know, there's, once again, there's this flaw. We're supposed to be healthy. That, of course, is the cultural ideal. And one of the problems with uh, getting stuck in the level of difference getting stuck in that particular level, either identifying or putting value judgments, is that it creates an enormous amount of separation between us as human beings. You know, when we really identify with ourselves, with our bodies, our minds, with our cultures, it creates a tremendous gulf between us and other people. It also creates an enormous amount of separation even within, within our own experience. Because when we value judging a particular state of mind, it keeps us away. You know, we tend to contract around that state and it keeps us away from really experiencing it fully. 
from really relaxing and settling in because we've created the separation through value judgment, through identification with that particular emotion or that particular feeling or that particular sensation. If we label something as bad, immediately there's resistance to being with it. So getting stuck in the level of difference. And of course, this difference often comes out of our thinking minds. Larry's been talking about the kalesas, which are forces in the mind. And I just wanted to take a couple minutes to talk about that because very often it's really the kalesas that are really fueling the kind of thinking that we're engaging in. This kind of the forces of uh, what the Buddha described as is ignorance, you know, basically not seeing, not seeing. And what aren't we seeing? What happens with the kalesas? The kalesas, of course, are greed, hatred, and delusion. Their reactions, okay, their reactions to experience. Greed arises when we experience something pleasant. We cling to it. When something unpleasant arises, quite often we respond to it through aversion, which is hatred, aversion, pushing away. So we're often pushing away unpleasant experiences or clinging to the pleasant. And why we do that, why we react that way, is because there's a misunderstanding. There's a misunderstanding. There's a misunderstanding. The misunderstanding is telling us, this voice is telling us that we need this. We need this experience or we don't need this experience in order to be happy. That somehow our happiness depends on either not having this experience or having it. Creates an enormous amount of anxiety insecurity in the mind because we're constantly seeking or avoiding experience. Most of us can see the kind of destructive power of greed, hatred, and delusion in the world. I mean, if we begin to look at just what a mess things are really, um, we, you know, we can begin to, you know, we can begin to see those forces. I think most of us would agree that a lot of the problems arise out of greed and hatred. All the problems in the world really come out of that place of ignorance, of not understanding. I mean, it's very interesting when you think about starting a war with somebody else in order to achieve peace. I mean, it's, quite, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. It doesn't really make much sense. But obviously there's a reactivity. There's a clearly imposed value judgments, right, on the other people. There's, you have to construct you know, images around that person. Quite often they're based on our thinking, our culture, our conditioning. So tonight mostly I want to talk about overcoming this discontent, overcoming this sense of separation, this sense of uh, alienation, disconnection, conflict, tension, aggression. In order to overcome separation, we really have to develop really a different approach to life. I mean, it really is quite a radical thing that uh, we're engaged in here. Really, it, it obviously asks a lot from us. That's clear. It takes an enormous amount of effort. We've talked quite a bit about effort, balanced effort, but it definitely, without a doubt, takes a lot of effort. But where's the effort directed? 
Where's the effort directed? Where, where are we directing this effort? Is it, is it directed towards becoming something else? Refining differences? You know, becoming more perfect? Becoming somebody? Somebody that our culture idolizes? Not so. Not so. Our efforts are really about overcoming separation, about recognizing what is really universal in our experience. And that's the problem, really, that, we're, that we all face, everybody on this planet. There are real, there's a real connection. There's an interconnection between all of us. There's a real commonality there. There's a bond. But it doesn't get recognized because it, this, the differences are so seductive. Yeah. And so we have to develop a kind of, a universal intelligence. We have to really tap into something that's inside ourselves that's going to tell us something different about our experience, something that's going to guide us, guide us in new directions. The Buddha, the word the Buddha, means the awakened one. I think that's a very important point to make. You know, in all the striving, all the effort, all the, all the energy we've put out, I think it's very, very important to realize that what we're engaged in is a process of awakening. We're not in a process of becoming. And why is that? Why is it just a question of awakening rather than becoming? Very important. Why? Why is it a process of awakening? and not getting something or getting somewhere. It's because the intelligence that we need to awaken is inside ourselves. We already have it. You know, it's there already. And it's, it's quite dormant, perhaps, but it's there. And it's really a matter of moving through the level of appearance, moving through the level of difference, and tapping into that other intelligence that intelligence that's always there. It's really a matter of seeing it. Unfortunately, we have to work with the kalesas. You know, they cloud the mind. That's how they're described. They cloud the mind. You know, they cloud that kind of purity of awareness that's inside all of us. It's part of being a human being. Why it's not about becoming, but awakening is because awareness is about coming to rest. When we're busy becoming something, we're always moving, moving into the next moment. And then we have to stay there, build. It's not about that. It's about settling down. It's about learning to relax and open and to begin to recognize the power that's in there already, the power of awareness. The qualities of awareness. What, what, are the, what is awareness? What, is, what are the qualities? Silence, one, silence. Non-judging, non-rejecting, all-inclusive. Non-reactive, deeply equanimous, deeply equanimous and completely content. Okay, so that power is inside ourselves. It's there. 
It's a very, very powerful healing force to tap into. It heals the separation that we feel. Yeah. It, heals the, it heals the difference, the distance. By tapping into the force you know, of awareness, this, this total acceptance of the way things are, it leads to greater and greater self-acceptance, more and more metta. And we've mentioned metta, and of course it's up in the building. And probably all of you by now know or figured it out what that means, loving-kindness. And really, uh, loving-kindness is really an expression of awareness, an expression of deep acceptance, of connection, of loving-kindness. That's the kind of intelligence that, that springs from awareness. leads to tremendous faith and confidence when we imagine that if we meet our desires that's what's going to bring happiness creates a lot of fear creates a lot of problems creates an enormous amount of agitation in the mind because we're constantly seeking constantly moving forward constantly off balance constantly looking outside of ourselves this incessant, incessant looking outside. And one of the ways that this looking outside shows up in this particular practice anyways is uh, in the planning mind. Uh, we're, we're moving along in the retreat. We're sort of in our, you know, sort of we've still got quite a few, few days here, but it's moving along. Time is, is clipping right along here. And quite often uh, as things unfold and we start moving towards the end, of course, the planning mind kicks in. Uh, Kicks in in quite a big way. Uh, And uh, pretty soon it starts really occupying a lot of our time uh, sitting here, all sorts of plans. One thing about the planning mind when we get into it is usually our plans never come quite to a close. Uh, It's kind of this open-ended process. One plan leads to the next plan and more refinement and more refinement. And, you know, the scenarios we really, the scenarios we create just keep proliferating. Uh, there's a word in, in Buddhist psychology called proliferation. And that is sort of when one gets engaged in indulging in thinking, uh, there's a tendency, a very, very strong tendency, I'm sure you've seen this all, all of you to proliferate. It doesn't like, we don't come to an end in thinking, by thinking. You know, just keep, we just keep fueling it. There's a world of difference between thinking and the thinking mind that's influenced by the kalesas, by the forces of attachment, by the forces, by the reactive mind. I'm sure a lot of you will agree with this. Tremendous difference between that kind of thinking that's really reactive, that's struggling, that's pushing away, that's clinging, and the thinking mind that comes out of awareness, that comes out of silence that comes out of complete acceptance and clarity. A good example of this is working with fear. We've talked a little bit about fear and I got a chance to see it today in the loop when I had a little bit of confrontation with the dog. Uh, 
uh, brought up some fear, uh, nothing serious. But I, I, but one of the one of the ways we really relate to fear is by trying to get rid of it, and I think that's a deeply conditioned response to trying to get rid of. There's this there's this tremendous judgment around fear. It's really a, it definitely has a, a bad rap in this culture. Uh, we don't we don't like fear. Uh, we probably a lot of us might even think, gee, I'm, I'm even doing this practice so that I can get rid of my fear. In this tremendous cultural idea about being fearless, you know, we all want to be fearless. Uh, <coughs> me too. I'd like to be fearless too. Uh, but trying to deal with it by trying to get rid of it, dealing with it, trying to get rid of it. If we begin to observe, if we begin to investigate what that does with fear, what happens when we try to get rid of fear? You know, you, you're, you're in a situation where you're experiencing a lot of anxiety. What do we do? Well, we try to get rid of the anxiety. And we try in a lot of different ways. We try to explain to ourselves why we shouldn't feel anxious. Uh, we might try to avoid the conditions that bring up anxiety. We certainly end up kind of judging it, really trying to manage it, trying to, to, to kind of push it down so that we can get through. And of course, what does that do to anxiety? But it just feeds it. It gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Instead of trying to see it, period. Instead of just being with it from one moment to the next. And what does fear look like when you can be with it? Through the intelligence of awareness, what does it look like? Well, there are sensations there. There are sensations in the body, and I'm sure all of you can sort of start pinpointing those sensations, where, where it shows up in the body. It shows up in the chest, perhaps, or the stomach. You know, it's a process happening. This, the body is really reacting. Also, the mind is doing something, right? It's, it's, it's trying to escape quite often. It's full of all sorts of agitated thinking. But the thinking mind starts judging it. The thinking mind starts evaluating, looking at it, analyzing, trying to figure it out. And it's trying to figure it out from trying to get rid of it. From trying to get rid of it. When we can bring the power of awareness to fear, and we can actually accept the experience from one moment to the next, that allows us, that gives us the freedom to think about it. And we think about it in a really different way. You know, we hold fear in a very different way if we can observe it, if we can be with it from one moment to the next. It allows us to really analyze it and to even look, you know, to try to understand the conditions that arose under. You know, what's the conditioning around the fear? It's helpful. It's helpful to analyze, it's helpful to figure out. It's helpful to strategize, it's helpful to plan. But it's really only effective when there's awareness underneath the thinking. Because if the mind is reacting one way or the other, the thinking really isn't productive. It doesn't bring us the happiness that we're seeking. The happiness that we're seeking is really in awareness. That's where we're gonna find rest. That's where we're going to feel a sense of completion. And when our thinking comes from that place of completion, instead of seeking, reaching out for need, if there's a sense of real completion, a real settling into, settling back, well, then our thinking is so much clearer. So much clearer. 
So how to awaken intelligence? You know, describing awareness, it sounds really good. It sounds good to me. Um, but how to awaken it? You know, how to get access to it? If it's there, it's in there somewhere. It's, uh, you know, so a lot of us have tasted awareness. We know it's there. But how to, how to, how to gain access to it? No big surprise, it's mindfulness, it's attention. It's really a powerful tool that we have. It's a powerful tool that we have, that ability to, to observe our experience, to pay attention to it without evaluating. You know, see, it's, very, it's really made up of the same stuff of, of awareness. You know, it, it's, it doesn't criticize, it doesn't judge, it doesn't evaluate. It just observes. That's its function. That's its function. Yeah. Everybody in this room has the capacity to be mindful. Yeah. And its function is to observe without judging, without criticizing, from one moment to the next. And to mindfulness, it doesn't matter whether the experience is pleasant or unpleasant, because there's no judgment. Yeah. It's just that, that capacity to be from one moment to the next without comparing, without being mediated by our thinking mind. It's very, very direct. You know, when you feel the breath and you feel those sensations, thought is not in between. Thought is not between the awareness and the sensation. It's there. You're feeling the sensation. You don't have to describe the sensation. You don't have to interpret it. You can just be with that sensation from one moment to the next. That's what mindfulness is. Thinking will evaluate the breath, comment on the breath, describe the breath. Mindfulness won't do that. Mindfulness will just be with the experience from one moment to the next. By learning to observe without reacting, you know, without reacting, without clinging to the pleasant, without pushing away the unpleasant, what happens? What happens in that process when we start paying attention? We start observing our experience. We begin to notice, for instance, that, you know, the experience is a kind of a process, right? Uh, it's, it, it's kind of unfolding, it's happening, and there's been, you know, think about how many experiences you've had today, thousands and thousands. It's constantly unfolding, constantly changing. With mindfulness, we begin to notice more. It's really that simple. Yeah. We're not out to change our experience. We're out to notice more. We're out to notice more. We start waking up because we start seeing more clearly. We begin to see more of our experience. For instance, quite often, most of you, many of us have seen, I'm sure, that there's a tendency to be caught up in the middle of experience, right? And then maybe if you have a moment of mindfulness, you find yourself in the middle somewhere. When the mindfulness starts getting stronger, you start being able to pick it up earlier. You start noticing that wandering mind before it goes too far. And you know, of course, everybody has long periods of wandering. But if you look at it over the course of the whole retreat, you know, probably there's a lot more mindfulness now than there was when you started this retreat. I would bet everybody in this room 
has developed a lot more mindfulness than they had when they first got here. Sure of it. Sure of it. You start noticing more. You start becoming more sensitive. You start noticing that fact of life that Larry uh, talked about last night, that fact of impermanence. Extremely important to see that. What does awareness of, of that fact of impermanence tell us? What does the intelligence tell us? You know, what happens when we're silent enough to begin looking at life and beginning to see its process? You know, we begin to see it in a much more direct way because we're not so agitated, we're not so lost in our constructs. We can begin to take a look at life and see it quite a different way. Well, one of the facts that certainly comes up is that Larry mentioned this too, is life is short. That it's, it's short for all of us. It's something we share. It's a universal fact. Okay. It's a fact that connects us all. It's a universal truth. The mind. We begin to notice how impermanent the mind is. And one really helpful tool that, that they, they teach in the Thai forest tradition, um, I work with Tanpanya, uh, was extremely helpful for this, which is, uh, in the Thai forest tradition, they use nature to develop awareness. You know, and the way they do that, is they use their environment, they use their life there uh, to reflect back and to look at their own minds. And we can do that here in Barrie. We don't have to go to Thailand to do that. And if you go out for a walk, I mean, look at today, the weather. An extraordinary day, you know, I mean, just tremendous winds and hail and, and, you know, I went out for a long, do the loop today and it was just, it was unbelievable really, just like fighting the winds the whole way. Um, you know, the constant weather changes, you know, constantly moving, constantly moving. Not so unlike our minds, you know, Not so, what about those storms, you know, in our minds? The storm that you were engaged in this morning, you know, when somebody was taking too long in the line, you know, taking too long in the line, getting in your way, you know, beat you to the shower, (laughs) no no hot water. Okay, the storm, it's very similar. Where is it? It's gone. Listen now. Starting to settle, settle down. Looking at nature really can help us tune into the fact that we are part of nature extremely important understanding to get to, that we are part of nature. Our bodies clearly are part of nature. They rise, they pass away, they change. We are in nature. We are nature. Our minds are too. We identify with them. We, we label, this is who I am. This is me. And that separates us. You know, that cuts us out of nature. Because now we're a thing. You know, we're something that doesn't change. Limits us. You know, limits us. And it makes us really not accept change. You know, we hold on and we cling you know, to what we have. We get frightened of change. And that's because we're, we're, we're stepping out of nature. We're stepping away from it. We're rejecting it. And nature is out there, everywhere else but here. The law of impermanence tells us something else, something different. The fact is, everything is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. There's nothing, nothing exists that's permanent. That's amazing 
Amazing, amazing truth. One that we certainly don't relate to uh, in a very uh, meaningful way. You know, we live our lives quite often like things aren't impermanent. The advantage of seeing impermanence, what comes out of seeing impermanence? Certainly one of the powers that comes out of seeing impermanence, you know, when just sitting there, you know, working with your sleepiness, working with the restlessness, you know, moving through all these different states of mind and just making an effort to just be there to pay attention over and over again. Maybe it's not this moment-to-moment mindfulness that we keep talking about, you know, or, or you're really noticing on a microscopic level uh, what your experience is. It, not so not so important. That happens sometimes in practice, but a lot of times it's like just sitting there, sweating it out. Uh, you know, just moving through one state after the next, or one sensation after the next, and, and hopefully, you know, you're making a little bit of an effort there, and in those moments, uh, you know, happen sometimes, uh, you know, hopefully more regular as, as the retreat goes on, or more regular as you practice mindfulness, as you get stronger. And certainly one of the things that happens is, think about the first two o'clock sitting that you had on your first day. And now look at the two o'clock sitting. It could be just as sleepy. It might even be sleepier. But how are we holding that experience? How are we relating to it? You know, when those moments of restlessness come up, you know, the first couple of days of a retreat are tough, tough days. I mean, you, you know, sitting up here, you know, looking around, it's, People are really, you know, we're really in there. Uh, there's a lot of restlessness. There's a lot of struggling going on. There's a lot of work. It's really hard work during those days, you know. And now, okay, we're sitting, and I'm sure restlessness is still coming up. Yet the hall is so much more silent. I mean, it has really, really changed a lot in here. In just five days. In just five days, things have changed so dramatically. And that silence comes out of a place of non-reactivity. That's where that silence is coming from in the hall. We're not quite as reactive as we were to the difficulties. Not quite as reactive to those moments of boredom or restlessness. And why don't we react? Why don't we react? Is it really just forcing ourselves? We're becoming good, conforming uh, yogis, <laughs> you know, who following the rules. I don't think so. I don't think so. We're not reacting in the same way because we know we've had this experience. You know, we, we, we're getting to know restlessness. We're getting to know sleepiness. We're getting to know self-doubt as a particular state of mind that arises. You know, we're beginning to get an idea that fantasy is maybe not so substantial. You know, that it's thought. You know, that, it's, that arises when we're bored, quite often. We start fantasizing. So there's a process here. We're beginning to see the non-reactivity is coming out of the insight that we're all developing in seeing the fact that all these particular processes are just processes. 
that we go through. And that there's no need to take them as who you are. There's no need to identify with that sleepiness. No need to identify with the restlessness. It's just a state of mind that's coming and going. It arises under certain conditions and it passes away. It's just part of nature, just like the storms. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that inside ourselves, which is essential. Because the more we see that, the more we remember, oh, wait a second, I can move through this experience. I can be with it just the way it is. I don't have to get rid of it. I don't have to change it. I don't have to have something else. And realizing that, just realizing that, waking up to that fact. See, nothing is changing. The sleepiness is there. The doubt is there. The restlessness is there. Nothing is necessarily going away. But the way we hold that experience, the way we're relating to it, is so much less reactive. We're learning something here. We're developing equanimity. We're developing more calm. And in that calm and and less reactivity, we're beginning to settle into awareness. We're having more moments of awareness. We're coming to a place of a little bit more rest. It's not to say that the storms are going to pass right away. It's not to say that that's the end of the storms, because that's not. The storms are definitely going to come, whether they're here or whether they're away. But the way you relate to those storms is, is what's going to make the difference. You know, we're going to find rest in the middle of the storm. That's where we're going to find rest. Not in getting rid of the storms. Because life is out of our control. You know, if it was up to us, probably most of us would be living 80 degree temperature, dry, uh, preferably on the coast somewhere, or, or near the mountains. Uh, you know, the conditions we would want for our, even our, for our minds, you know, equanimity, calm, joy, peace, at all moments, at all times, in all situations. Well, that may not happen right away. It may not happen right away. And when it does, I want you to come and t- talk to me about it. Because uh, I definitely want to learn something. When we start reacting less, we start suffering less. It's that simple. When we start reacting less, we start suffering less. And when we start suffering less, we begin to understand suffering better. When we start tapping into peace, into rest, that's really when we start understanding suffering. We don't understand it so well when we're in that reactive state. We're in that state of trying to get rid of, trying to fix, trying to figure out, trying to change. It's a very contracted place. Very difficult to come to a place of rest, and it's very difficult to understand the discontent. It's very difficult to understand the source of the discontent, because we don't get to it. We're caught. We're lost. We're in the wave, submerged. When we start developing a bit more calm, a bit more focus, a bit more serenity, when we start tapping into a bit more of, a, of awareness, power that's there, we start seeing suffering everywhere. You know, we start seeing suffering everywhere. We see it in our own experience. 
You know, it gets much more subtle as you practice. You begin to see the places where we cling. You see the places where we push away. You know, and you see that there, that kind of leads to discontent. You know, because for, for a few moments you weren't so reactive. But now you've stood up, you're in the dining hall and all hell is breaking loose. And, you know, the mind is just totally spinning. But you remember those moments of quiet. You see that they're not there anymore. So the way it is now maybe isn't absolute reality. You know, maybe it's not the way it is. It's just the way it is now. You know, we remember. We remember those moments of calm and rest. One thing that happens when you begin understanding, when we begin to understand suffering uh, better, is that uh, you realize that all of us are connected to this one sort of search, I think, one quest, which is, of course, I mentioned it, I think, earlier in the retreat, this, this quest to seek happiness. And when you begin to understand your own suffering, you also begin to understand why people don't ever get there, why so few people actually come to a place of real inner contentment you know, kind of unshakable inner contentment. And we begin to see what brings inner contentment to ourselves. And we look around and we see that people really are doing the wrong things. I mean, it, it is insane what people do that they think is going to lead to happiness. I mean, I read the newspapers and I'm, my jaws consist constantly open from uh, just the horrendous things people are doing. And they actually think they're going, it's going to lead to peace. Like, you know, reading about people hiring people to kill their spouses and all sorts of stuff to get the insurance money. Getting the insurance money is going to bring you happiness? I mean, after you've killed somebody? I mean, it's crazy. It's totally insane. But that's the level of delusion. You know, that's the level of ignorance. It's the kalesa of greed, really out of control. And it's that kalesa of greed that prevents us, prevents that person from understanding what is going to bring the suffering. I mean, peace. Okay? It's, it's the kalesa. Greed, hatred, and delusion. Not understanding what brings peace. That's not understanding what brings peace. Finally, when we start connecting to our own suffering in a different way, when we really begin to suffer less, when we start discovering a bit of inner contentment, it leads to a lot greater, it leads to much greater openness. You know, it really opens up other possibilities. We really begin to feel very connected to people. And that's one of the really wonderful fruits of this practice. That one can actually be sitting here, you know, struggling, going through this, going through that, quite often feeling quite separate perhaps because of the silence, but quite often the fruits of the practice really leads to that connection, that sense of that we're really all in it together. You know, whether we're meditators or not, you know, we're all dealing with the same issues. We're all dealing with a lot of the same problems.
spend a lot of time th- talking about thinking. Not, not that much about action. Not that much about action. And I think it's uh, quite important to begin to see that relationship with thinking and action. It's one of the reasons we encourage people to be aware of their intentions before they move and shift. Because one of the insights that comes out of that is beginning to see the fact that thought always precedes action. Actions follow thought. That's why it's so important that our thoughts arise out of awareness, and not the kalesis. Because when we act from a place of greed, we act from a place of hatred, it creates suffering. It creates harm. When we act from a place of awareness, it creates connection. Because those actions are based on not creating suffering, on connection, on non-harm. Just, by the, just from coming out of that place of rest, there's no need to harm anyone. The Dhammapada, the Buddha, very well-known verse, talks about the relationship between uh, thought and action. Speak or act with ignorance, which is thought, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with awareness, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. And so happiness really does depend on our actions. And our actions really do depend on clarity of thinking, clarity of mind. One one kind of one thing I wanted to mention before I finish here is uh, I kind of made a lot of jokes about uh, Dharma books and tapes and all that stuff, and uh, sometimes I think it's a little bit out of control uh, because it is really turning into this major industry. But at the same time, I reflect on my own practice and I see how just tremendously valuable it was. But what makes it what makes it valuable is when you're engaged in a practice yourself. Yeah. I mean, when you when you're engaged in a practice, when you're tapping into awareness, you know, when you're engaged in this process of working with all the challenges that we face and coming to a place of rest, when you're willing to deal with all that stuff. When we read Dharma, when we hear Dharma, from that place of practice, of really engaging it in ourselves. You know, it resonates, not, not as an ideal, not as some place to get to, not some unreachable place, but it resonates as an actuality. And it can be extremely helpful to, to hear how other people did it you know, and to inspire, to inspire us to practice more. So I want to encourage you to use your time, the rest of the time that's, that's available to us on this retreat, to, to be aware of that kind of tendency as the retreat goes on to get into kind of a habitual, kind of mechanical way of being. Uh, you know, it's very, very challenging to keep a fresh mind, to really approach every day, you know, really in a new way, to really try to be really present. You know, 
be aware of kind of indulging in certain activities, such as planning. Now see if you can restrain that impulse to, to have everything figured out ahead of time. And to really stay here. That's going to be a tough job. Try to stay here for the next few days. Really stay with the practice. Really keep nurturing that mindfulness. There's been a tremendous momentum that has built up. And we want to keep protecting that. We want to use that momentum. Even if it doesn't feel like there's a momentum, there is. It's happening. So you want to protect that. So let's, let's sit for a couple minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.